Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King at Crimson Tees on this Sunday when we remember the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our reading uh, from Acts chapter 1 that Roger read at the beginning of the service recounts that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days, and then he was taken up to heaven. This event, being taken up to heaven, is called the Ascension. However, I'm not going to preach on Acts chapter 1. Our text this morning from God's Word will be from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And next week, our text uh, from God's Word will be taken from Isaiah chapter 11. So for Ascension, and next week is Pentecost, uh, we will have a short break from our Samuel series and have a two-part mini-series in the book of the prophet Isaiah. So please have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. When you heard this passage read this morning, perhaps you thought, hey, what is this, Christmas in June? <laughs> Indeed, this, uh, this passage from Isaiah 9 is uh, always read at Christmas time. And not surprisingly, when you look at um, how verse 6 begins, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And we think of the Christ child, born of Mary. And for some of us, perhaps we start humming the music for those words from Handel's Messiah. And if you know Handel's Messiah and you continue to hum along, or if you just keep reading along, you get to the rest of verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. These verses are the reason why I chose this text for ascension. They may start by talking about the birth of a royal son, but they major on talking about his government. 
that he governs or reigns with justice and righteousness as king on the throne of David and over his kingdom forever. And that is what the ascension is about. Jesus, who was at the same time born of a woman and born the Son of God, who overthrew the oppression of sin at the cross and who reversed sin's consequences, death, in his resurrection, now ascends the throne of David and is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven to reign for eternity. The ascension is not just about Jesus' gospel. Um, The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. But then if you fast forward from there to Acts chapter 2, where the apostle Peter is... um, giving his sermon on Pentecost. And in that sermon, he declares that the angel Gabriel's words were fulfilled in the ascension of Jesus Christ. So I want you to keep a finger on Isaiah 9, because we'll turn back there. But I want you now to turn to Acts chapter 2. Um, And we're looking at verses 34 to 36. So if uh, anybody has the page number, you can call it out. Acts chapter 2, verse 34 to 36. 8.56. in the Black Bible. 1,008. 1,008 in the large print. So listen to these words uh, that were the clincher of Peter's sermon on Pentecost. And it, it the sermon left the people cut to the heart so that 3,000 put their faith in Jesus. These were the words in Acts 2, beginning in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, he, he says it in what we have as Psalm 110, he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word Christ in the Greek uh, is the word that corresponds in the Hebrew to the word Messiah. It means the anointed one. This word has its origins in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that uh, Keith reviewed for us um, last week, in last week's sermon. Uh, This word, Messiah or Christ, refers to the son or descendant of David that God promised through the prophet Nathan would reign on David's throne forever. So implicit in the word king, or excuse me, implicit in the word Christ is the word king. And not just any king, but the promised forever king. Now today in in our 21st century North America, the, the picture 
of royalty that we have is much more about entertaining than about reigning. Um, I say this meaning no uh, disrespect to Queen Elizabeth, for whom I have a very great respect and affection. But of course, in Canada, we live in a democracy. And for good reason, we believe. Um, because unlike Christ the King, merely human kings with too much power do not reign with justice and righteousness. Because um, the, the reason is, um, a reason that uh, David Weston quoted in a sermon that he gave about a year ago, and that, that quote is, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We need look no far further than uh, King David himself for evidence of this truth, as we've seen recently in our series in 2 Samuel. And there's lots more evidence uh, when you look at the line of kings descended from David in the books of 1 and 2 Kings. And that's why when the apostles ask in our Acts 1 passage, they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answers by turning the attention of the apostles away from their misguided desire to go back to the good old days of David. Because there was plenty that wasn't good about them. And all that was good was from God. So Jesus turns their attention to trusting God for the way forward and commands them to wait to be empowered by God's Holy Spirit. More about that next week. So as I said, in Canada we live in a democracy and governing is done by our elected parliament with direction from judging uh, that's done by our judiciary. And although Queen Elizabeth is constitutionally our head of state, she's a, a figurehead, um, having the authority to govern in name only, and far removed from the actual responsibilities and work of judging and governing. However, at the time of David, and in the first century, and for a very long time since then, reigning was about having both the authority and the responsibility to judge and to govern. And it's this job description of reigning that applies to the ascended Jesus, Christ the King. So now turning uh, back to Isaiah chapter 9, let's get into this text. I want to start first at the very bottom, the last line in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. I looked up the word zeal in the dictionary and found these synonyms, passion, devotion, committedness, 
enthusiasm. And who or what is the Lord of hosts zealous for? Who or what is the Lord passionately committed to? The Bible as a, as a whole gives, I think, two answers. The Lord is zealous for his people, the people he is redeeming, saving, restoring for himself from rebellious humanity, many of whom do not yet know him, and yet he is zealous for them. The Lord is zealous also, the Bible says, for his name, for his glory. But these two things are not contradictory. They are complementary. The Lord, as the creator of all, is at work redeeming his fallen creation. And things can only be set right for us, creatures, when he is at the center and ultimately at the center of the glorious worship of his redeemed people from every nation, tribe, language, and people group. And what is it that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do? Well, it's what's written in the whole rest of the passage. And something very interesting about the rest of the passage in the Hebrew is that it is written in what is called the prophetic perfect tense. So the perfect tense is meant for actions that were completed in the past. But the prophet Isaiah uses this perfect tense to speak of things coming in the future as though they had already been completed, as though they had already happened. It is a way of expressing with complete certainty that these things will come to pass. So the prophet Isaiah says that because the Lord of hosts is zealous for the people he is redeeming and he is zealous for his glory, he is certain to do the following. In verse 1 and 2, He's going to break into the gloom of anguish of a people walking in darkness and shine his light. In verse 3, he's going to cause that people to thrive and multiply and rejoice. Because, in verse 4, he's going to end the oppression they have been suffering under. Because in verse 5, he will put an end to war. Because in verse 6, a child will be born to reign whose very character will be the character of God. And in verse 7, this king's reign will grow without limit, bringing endless peace. This king will reign on David's throne, beginning now and continuing forever to govern with justice and with righteousness. And Isaiah is absolutely certain about all this because this will be the fulfillment of God's promises to David and before David, God's promises to Abraham, the promises that express God's great saving purposes for creation. God said it. He will do it. Amen.
Isaiah expresses complete confidence in the trustworthiness of God that his words will be fulfilled. And this is all the more precious when you consider the turmoil and political upheaval that was happening in Isaiah's time. The chapters before and after this passage reveal that people all around Isaiah did not share his confidence and a dark hopelessness prevailed. Verse 1 speaks of some places uh, called Zebulun and Naphtali and also Galilee of the Nations, saying these places had formerly been brought into contempt. Now these names uh, refer to the most northerly part of Israel where you will find the head spring of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. And to understand the significance of these places in Isaiah's prophecy, we need some historical context. Back in the third generation of David's line, a civil war divided David's kingdom into two parts. One tribe, David's tribe of Judah, became the southern kingdom. The other tribes became the northern kingdom. The north was ruled by a rival series of kings not descended from David, and they set up two rival worship sites with, believe it or not, golden calf idols. What could go wrong with that? (laughs) Not surprisingly, the kings in the north were uniformly bad news when compared to King David, the King David gold standard. In the south, David's line of kings continued and the site for worship continued to be the temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. And although there were some good kings among uh, David's descendants, many of the others were as bad or worse than their northern counterparts. The time of Isaiah is about 200 years into the divided kingdoms of north and south. Isaiah lives in and and he prophesies in the southern kingdom, Judah. But here in verse 1 of our text, he is making reference to the very northern part of the northern kingdom where the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali had originally settled. This area was very much in the news um, at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry because um, it was the first part of Israel to be captured by the king of Assyria. Assyria was an aggressive, rapidly growing empire headquartered out of Nineveh, think uh, Mosul in modern day northern Iraq. Mosul is actually the place where my grandmother was born. Assyria would go on to capture the rest of the, of the northern kingdom later in Isaiah's ministry. And also during Isaiah's ministry, Assyria would overrun the territory of the southern kingdom. Uh, that happened during the reign of a king named Ahaz, a descendant of David, who 
despite God sending Isaiah to confront him, um, Ahaz chose not to seek God or trust God in times of crisis. Instead, he actually put his trust in trying to make an alliance with Assyria against his traditional enemy, the Northern Kingdom, and it backfired very badly. Um, But although the territory of the Southern Kingdom was overrun, its capital, Jerusalem, did not fall. And this was because Ahaz's son and successor, a king named Hezekiah, Um, of course also a descendant of David Hezekiah did seek God and trust God to save his people and and God did so in, in a miraculous way so the southern kingdom narrowly survived the Assyrian threat it would stand for another 125 years before falling to the next aggressive empire builder on the block Babylon But back to talking about the far north of Israel, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the area that was first to fall to the Assyrians. And the king of Assyria's policy was to depopulate the area by taking most of the Israelite people to Assyria. Um, The land went untended agriculturally and became overgrown and the small population of people who ended up living there under Assyrian rule was a mixed group, including people from various Gentile nations, hence the other name for the area, Galilee of the Nations. Isaiah prophesies in uh, verse 1 about this place, that it was the first part of Israel to be oppressed by, by a foreign power, that it was brought into this contempt. Um, But the last few verses of the previous chapter, Isaiah chapter 8, the verses that lead up to the start of our passage, speak about the people there who were in such darkness that they literally, in uh, chapter 8 verse 20, it says, they have no dawn. The sun never rose for them. Having long ago given up on God, they had run out of other options, um, and in their hopelessness, instead of turning to God to cry out for help, they look up and shake their fists at him and at every other authority figure. Um, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 21 says in part, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And in the final verse of chapter 8, verse 22, um, things are summed up in the words that say, Behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But then God in his grace intervenes, shining his light in the darkness. Verse 1. And there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then in a place which had been depopulated and neglected, verse 3 speaks of people once again thriving, multiplying, rejoicing. Why? Because verse 4 says, God has broken the yoke of oppression as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian refers to events that happened right in that same place, right there, up there in the very northern part of Israel, but back in the days of the judges. At that time, God's people were also under a yoke of oppression, the brutal oppression of a foreign power uh, from the Arabian Peninsula, Midian. And God turned the situation around by calling a man named Gideon, Uh, despite his weakness and reluctance, Gideon led a troop that uh, God pared down to a mere 300 men against an overwhelmingly large enemy. And God will not be human strength that delivers God's people from oppression, but God himself will deliver his people through human weakness. In verse 5, it says that God breaks the yoke of oppression not through a superior war machine, as is often the way, but by bringing an end to war. All the war gear is burned up. Take a look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. War boots were valuable. They were stripped from slain soldiers to equip other soldiers. You wouldn't burn them unless they were no longer needed. But why is war ended? Because, verse 6, together with verse 7, say, a child, a son, is born to reign on the throne of David. At the high point of David's reign, before the wheels came off, um, chapter, or excuse me, um, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15 said, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to his people. But our text says this royal child will reign with justice and righteousness, not just for a time, but forever. Now, of the reign of David's son Solomon, whose name comes from the word peace or shalom, the Lord said in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. But of this royal child's reign, our text says that the increase of peace, shalom, wholeness, flourishing, will be without limit. And so much more than building a house for God's name that points to God's presence, this child's names reveal him as one who bears the very character 
of God. He is God in the flesh. <laughs> Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This royal child can be none other than the Son who fulfills God's promise to David, the Messiah, or Christ, God's forever King. In his best moments, David pointed to and prefigured this king, but this king will not be like David or Solomon or any of the other kings that descended from David. This king is destined for the seat of ultimate power in the universe, holding all authority in heaven and on earth, yet he will never become corrupt. Um, he will reign with justice and righteousness for all time. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And who was it again that the Lord of hosts is zealous for? Oh yeah, it's all the people he is redeeming, saving, restoring from the ranks of rebellious humanity. The Lord of hosts is zealous for you and for me and for his people everywhere, including those who do not yet know they are his people because the gospel has not reached them yet. And that is why God came dressed in human weakness, born of a woman yet born the Son of God, a human being yet bearing God's character. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, although he could have called for 12 legions of angels to defend him when an armed mob came to take him to his execution, our king went willingly. His throne became the wood of a Roman cross, his crown was of thorns, and his royal banner was the mocking sign that read, the King of the Jews. Then he shed his blood for us to defeat the powers of evil bent on destroying us and keeping us in darkness forever. His decisive victory at the cross will ultimately spell the end for all wars and strife, for the cross alone has the power to break the yoke of every kind of oppression. It was God's victory through human weakness as on the day of Midian. And because of it, God's people will rejoice and flourish and multiply. Where once there was only gloom and anguish and distress and darkness and people shaking their fists at God, there will be a redeemed people thriving and multiplying and worshiping from every nation, tribe, people, and language around the throne of the crucified, risen, ascended Christ the King. Behold this glorious vision. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Amen.